One thing is for sure, I believe all Christians should be married to the message of this book. We begin, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is in a region what is today known as Central Turkey. Julius Caesar described the people who live there. They are fickle. They are fond of change. They are not to be trusted. And this is the type of folks we find in Acts chapter 13 and 14 when Paul first visited this area of Galatia. When the sun came up over the gate at Lystra, Paul healed a lame man. You probably remember the story. The superstitious Galatians, they reacted by assuming that Paul was a Greek god. Paul preached the gospel to clear up the confusion. But as the sun went down that day, these same fickle folk, they were swayed by grace-rejecting Jews. And they took up rocks to stone Paul. He barely escaped with his life. What a change. In a sense, though, they were still throwing rocks when Paul wrote this letter. These Jews couldn't kill him, so they tried to assassinate his character, question his apostleship. Where were his credentials? Who appointed him? This is why Paul introduces himself as an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul's commission came not from a church or from a denomination, but from Jesus himself. Shortly after our church got started, years ago now, I went to the local Baptist church to ask if we could use their baptistry. People had come to Christ. They needed to be baptized. But when I went to pick up the key, the pastor asked, the deacons want to know, are you ordained? I replied, well, I guess I am. God seems to be blessing our ministry. No, no, no. Have you been officially ordained? At the time, I had not. It's funny. It wasn't enough that God had ordained me. They wanted to see it in writing. The irony is, is that you can have a wall full of ordination certificates and it only amount to wallpaper unless God has sanctioned your ministry. Hey, God's ordination is the only one that really counts and it's the one that Paul appeals to here. He greets them, grace to you and peace. Here's Paul's familiar greeting. The sugar land of the Bible. Grace and peace, these two make beautiful music together. Grace and peace have been called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Did you know the term Siamese twins refers to siblings that are joined together at birth? If they share a vital organ, sometimes they stay connected for life. The very first twins referred to as Siamese were named Chang and Ng. They remained joined for life. As a matter of fact, they eventually married and they even fathered several children. Don't ask me for the details. But likewise, grace and peace stay joined together. Hey, you can't have one without the other. You can't enjoy the peace of God until you know the grace of God. And grace, rightly understood, always produces peace. You see, the two work together to bring fruit in a believing heart. 
Well, he says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in most of Paul's letters, this is where Paul would insert the prayer that he had been praying for the church. But his heart is too heavy for that here. In regards to the Galatians, he has other concerns. There are burning issues that he needs to address. He says to them, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. As I mentioned earlier, the Galatians were a gullible and a fickle bunch. And that made them prone to false doctrine. Paul says they were turning away from the gospel of grace. The phrase in the Greek means to defect to the other side. The verb tense implies that they were not there yet, but they were getting close. Their faith was vacillating. They were losing their grip on God's grace. They were being lured away by a different gospel. Now, if you've studied world religions, you can identify hundreds, if not thousands, of different gospels, of false gospels. But I suggest to you tonight that there are really only two types of religion. There's the hand of man reaching upwards towards God, and there's the hand of God reaching downwards toward man. You see, all religions except one can be summarized as man's hand reaching upward. Man's attempts to earn his way to God. They emphasize keeping of the rules and performing the rituals. They're a self-reliance. But Christianity is unique. It's God's hand reaching down to man. It's God reaching down through Christ Jesus, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is the true gospel. In fact, Paul says this different gospel is not really good news at all. Verse 7, which is not another in other words, it's not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or literally distort the gospel of Christ. This is a distortion. There's nothing good about this, this other gospel. The Galatians were buying into a distorted version of the truth. You know, I believe that Satan distorts God's truth in one of three ways. Either he twists it, he subtracts from it, or he adds to it, and sometimes he does all three. Satan can twist the interpretation of a verse. He makes it say what it was never intended to say. Thus the old adage, a text out of context becomes a pretext. Satan loves to take the Bible out of context. Well, Satan also subtracts from the truth. He can dilute or water down its meaning. A.W. Tozer once said, some have so watered down the gospel that if it were a medicine, it could not cure us. And if it were a poison, it would not harm us. A gospel without repentance of sin isn't the gospel at all. But at times, Satan adds to the truth. And this was the strategy that had infiltrated the church in Galatia. False teachers called Judaizers agreed that salvation was by grace through faith, but... Oh, and be careful of the buts. Hope you remember what your daddy said and read the fine print. But they added to the finished work of Jesus. They added to the cross. Here was their rap. 
Oh yes, Jesus died to forgive us. But if you really want to please God, you have to add to His work. And like every deceiver, they had a long list of do's and don'ts that needed to be added. The bottom line of their message was that faith is not really enough. It's up to us to augment Christ's work. This is what Paul calls a different gospel. It was not a gospel at all. A wise old preacher once advised his apprentice, he said, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. And a pure gospel, Christ and nothing less, nothing else. Paul continues in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let it be accursed. This is strong language. The Greek word translated accursed is anathema. It means damned to hell. Paul couldn't have refuted this with any more force. And he repeats his words in the next verse to make the message more emphatic. He says, as we have said before... In case you forgot, it was the previous verse. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. In other words, if an angel dresses up in white robes and appears with shining lights and comes and sits down at the foot of your bed, an angel, mind you, and preaches to you a gospel different from the grace that Paul had delivered to them, let the angel be damned. That's what he says. Oh boy, if Joseph Smith had listened to Paul, when he heard the baloney from Maroney, millions of people today wouldn't be headed to hell under the sway of Mormonism. If Muhammad hadn't listened to the supposed angel, there would be no Islam. You see, Paul knew that angels come in two varieties. They're the faithful kind and they're the fallen kind. And fallen angels or demons specialize in inspiring different gospels. This is why we need to be firmly grounded in the truth of God's grace. You see, to recognize the different gospel, you have to know the true gospel. And thus a pastor's job, his most vital task, is to feed God's people God's word. And the people's job is to consume what he feeds them. Did you hear about the woman who... She bought a parrot to keep her company. But she couldn't get the parrot to talk. She went back to the pet store and she complained to the owner. She said, you know, my parrot won't talk. It's not doing any good. It's not keeping me company. He said, well, does your parrot have a mirror in the cage? You know, parrots, they love mirrors. And so she bought a mirror. She took it home. She put it in the cage, but he still didn't talk. She returned to the pet store and she complained again. This time the, the owner said, well... You know, ma'am, does your parrot have a ladder? You know, parrots love those little ladders they can climb up and down. And you know, a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. And so she purchased one of these parrots, took it home, put it in a cage, but not a peep from the parrot. So she went back a third time. This time, the owner of the pet store, he told her, he said, why don't you try a swing? You know, parrots love those swings. Get your little parrot swinging. He'll talk up a storm. And so she bought a swing. Well, two days later, she returned to the pet store. When the owner inquired about the parrot, the woman announced that he was dead. The man was shocked. He asked the woman, he said, did your parrot ever say anything before he died? The woman replied, well, yes, just before he died, in this soft, faint, weak little whisper, he asked me, don't, 
don't you sell any food at that pet store? Well, you know, so often churches, they think we need mirrors. We need introspection and pop psychology. We need to be able to look into ourselves. Or we need ladders, step-by-step rules and formulas and self-help. Or we need swings, experiential, feelings-oriented religion. They try to entertain God's people with mirrors and ladders and swings. But what God's people really can't live without is God's Word. This is what feeds the soul. This is what grows our faith. Verse 10, For for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? You would think that Paul's stoning in Lystra was proof that his goal was to obey God, not please men. He says, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, living the Christian life, it requires making some choices that are not always popular. If my goal is to be well-liked and always fashionable and accepted at all costs, hey, it's only a matter of time before I'm going to compromise. This is why I need to settle this issue in my heart before it comes up in my life. That I'm going to obey God regardless of the consequences. One author puts it this way, It is a great freedom to know who owns you. If you do not know to whom you belong, you are apt to be the pawn of anyone whose identity is strong enough to overwhelm your own sense of inadequacy. This is so true. The question tonight is, who owns you? Is it a particular group at school? Is it a group of snotty-nosed friends at work? Is it the management of the company? Is it the girls in the office? Is it guys in the warehouse? Or is it clear to everyone around you that God is the one who calls the shots in your life? That you belong to God? Well, verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace that Paul preached was not his idea. It wasn't the result of his own vivid imagination. It was revealed to Paul directly by God. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Now he's talking about his gospel and he's saying that his gospel wasn't the result of imagination, but neither was it the result of education. Paul sure wasn't taught the gospel of grace in the Jewish yeshivas that he had attended. I mean, Paul's former teachers were upholders of the law, not dispensers of grace. He adds in verse 14, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. The gospel of grace didn't come to Paul through imagination or education or perspiration. He was exceedingly zealous. He worked hard to climb the ladder of legalism and Judaism. But that's not where he discovered God's amazing grace. Verse 15. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, And called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me. The gospel of grace came to Paul not through imagination or education or perspiration, but through revelation. God revealed His Son in Paul. 
God's plan for Paul's life started long before he came to Christ. Actually, from the very day he was born, I'm sure we all can look back on our lives before we knew Jesus and see where God was working providentially for our protection and for our direction. It all came to a head for Paul on the road to Damascus. It was there that Jesus revealed himself to Paul. But this verse mentions a different experience. There came a time when Jesus was revealed in Paul, not just to him, but in him. This may have happened when he was blinded by the light and in those days that he sat at the house of Ananias, or even later during his days in Arabia. But truly, the wonder of Christianity is that it's more than just a truth to be learned, but it's a living Lord that we experience in our hearts. Christ wasn't just revealed to Paul. He was revealed in Paul. And why? He says, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul always loved the Jews. But the gospel to the Gentiles was Paul's calling from the start. After Paul was called, here's what happens, he says. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now this is interesting. When Paul was saved, he didn't rush out to teach or even join a Bible study. Paul wanted to seek the Lord personally and privately. He went into the wilderness of Arabia and he got his DD, his doctorate of the desert. That's what he got. He wanted to seek the Lord before he consulted with anyone else. Just goes to prove God homeschools his kids. Now, obviously, I'm not against churches. You know that. I'm not against pastors. You know that. I'm not against good Bible teaching. But often, people spend too much time listening to men, so much so that they don't slow down and really listen to God. It's not healthy when people can tell you what the pastor said on Sunday, but they have no idea what God said to them during the week. We look for direction in all the wrong places. Books and CDs and the internet. Hey, we end up with what everyone else has said to us, but what has God said to you? And the result is duplication, not inspiration. Hey, what we need is not imagination or education or perspiration or duplication, but a personal revelation from God himself. That's what we need. That's what Paul received. Years ago, a sheep named Dolly was cloned by a British geneticist. That's how you say it. The experiment in cloning was hailed as a scientific breakthrough. And it raised all kinds of ethical dilemmas. But I thought, when I heard the news, I thought this. I said, wow, that's no big deal. The church has been cloning sheep for centuries. Rather than producing authentic thinking, spirit-led believers who have their own relationship with God, who are seeing the image of Jesus lived out in their life. So often churches are full of cookie-cutter Christians, just kind of stamped from the same mold rather than shaped personally and individually by the Holy Spirit. Years ago, Christian musician Steve Taylor, he wrote a song. I love this song. It was called, I Want to Be a Clone. Here's a short little snippet of it. I'd gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough, but now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said that was the way to start, but now you got to play the part. 
I want to be a clone. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. The church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much I rocked the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. And then the bridge ties it all together. Because if you want to be one of his, you got to act like one of us. Hey, Paul was nobody's clone. And he never would expect us to be either. The goal is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's him that we should all seek. Well, verse 18 tells us, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting. Paul shows up and he and Peter are talking it out. Wouldn't that be interesting? But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. And of course, the false teachers, they were accusing Paul of lying. He has to tell, I don't lie. He continues piecing together his life after his conversion. He says, afterwards, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. You remember, he spent time in Antioch, and it was from there that he was sent out to preach to the Gentiles, Antioch of Syria. And he says, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Isn't that a beautiful line? And they glorified God in me. I hope we all can say that. You know, the greatest proof of the gospel of grace is the trail of changed lives that are found in its wake. And the Apostle Paul himself was first in God's long line of miracles. The first testimony to God's amazing grace. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now this was after Paul's first missionary journey, after his trip through Galatia. Barnabas was Paul's Jewish sidekick from Jerusalem and Titus was one of the Gentile converts that had come to Christ during his missionary journey. He says, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And here is a good qualification to all that Paul will say later in this chapter. Paul will take an unbudging stand on the grace of God. But... His staunch, strong conviction was forged through humble, honest reflection. Paul didn't serve in a ministerial vacuum. He went to Jerusalem lest he had run in vain. In other words, he wanted to check this out with other learned men who knew God and who walked with God as well. You know, sometimes Christians, they live in a vacuum. Sometimes ministers and pastors pastor in a vacuum. We start to think that our way is the only way, not Paul. He wasn't afraid to concede that he could even be wrong. He knew that his gospel was true. But he was open to the possibility that there may be something that he had missed. 
And thus he went up to Jerusalem to bounce the ideas off the brethren. you got to love him for it. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now in Jerusalem, there were Jews who tried to force Titus, a Gentile, to conform to Old Testament rituals. They wanted him to surrender his freedom in Christ and embrace their tradition. This was not what Paul expected to find among the Jerusalem believers. It was obvious to him that this church had been infiltrated. And Paul tells us by whom. He says, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. This phrase, false brethren, is the Greek word pseudodelphus. It's a compound word, pseudo, which means bogus, and delphus, which means brother. Bogus brethren had infiltrated the church. The New English Bible translates the phrase, sham Christians. Paul was the defender of the faith, but these guys were pretenders of the faith. They were probably Pharisees who had sneaked into the circle of the church. They may even have professed Christ and thought that they were Christians, but they were spewing a dangerous mixture of faith plus law. We know this bunch as the infamous Judaizers. They tried to make Jews out of Gentiles. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, these were the fellows who followed Paul while he was in Galatia. Now they followed him all the way to Jerusalem as he stands up for the Galatians and as he defends his gospel. Always remember the most dangerous people to the body of Christ, the most dangerous factor to the body of Christ are not the blatant blasphemers out there. They're not the ardent atheists. No, our worst enemy is the bogus brother. It's the fellow who comes into the church with a mixture of grace and grunt. Lethal is the guy who teaches that you can obtain God's favor by grace, but then you have to maintain God's favor through this or that. Turn this guy loose in your church, and one day you'll wake up to a divided church. Hey, playgrounds have their bullies, and sadly, so do churches. This is the guy who comes into the church. Suddenly, his version of righteousness becomes the dividing line between the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots. He's the one, all of a sudden, who's defining who really loves God and who's the carnal in the church. The rules he deems important, the rituals he decides need to be kept, suddenly become the badge that everyone thinks they need to wear if they're going to be labeled spiritual. Everyone else in the church is second class. Needless to say, a bully is the kind of people who puts off airs that can kill the life and growth of a healthy church. Guys, it's grace that creates a mood of acceptance within the church. It's grace that allows people to grow at their own pace. It's grace that keeps people open to God rather than stifled by their own failures. Don't you budge an inch when it comes to God's grace. We need to make it the modus operandi of every area of our church. Paul refused to budge an inch in his stand against the Judaizer. He tells us in verse 5, 
He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And don't underestimate the pressure that Paul was under to capitulate here. I mean, to a Jew under the law, insisting on Titus' circumcision, that was just a minor concession. And besides, the church was facing a major rift. I can hear the peacemongers squawking. Paul, stop being so divisive. You're threatening the unity of the body. And yet Paul understood. The one thing more important than our unity is the truth. He discerned at this critical moment that truth was more important than truce. You know, the legalists appear so sincere, so disciplined, so outwardly righteous. We think, how can I oppose him? The ritualist, he has the weight of hundreds of years of tradition on his side. Who am I to argue with him? And yet, if the people who know better don't stand up for the grace of God, these folks will take control of the church. And they'll, take, they'll create a spiritual bondage and they'll wreck the life and the growth of believers. Former news analyst Elmer Davis once said of America, This will remain the land of the free only so long as it's the home of the brave. And so it is in the church. We need to stand up for the grace of God and the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus. Verse 6 tells us, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. <laughs> I love this. Pa Paul expected some help from these elders here in Jerusalem. But apparently they took a back seat in this conflict. They only stepped up to support Paul after the smoke had cleared and he had been declared the victor. These men were apostles, mind you. The big 12. They had a name, man, a reputation, some stature. But Paul was unimpressed. Notice what he concludes. God shows personal favoritism to no man. In other words, everybody puts their pants on the same way. For those who seem to be, to be something added nothing to me. Paul was on his own. Early in my Christian life, I had a mentor uh, named Dan DeHaan. Some of you may recognize that name. He was a chaplain for the Falcons for a time. And he had a real popular Bible study over in Marietta. When the Lord laid it on my heart to start a church, Dan was the first person I went to for confirmation. And I'll never forget what he said. He started out telling me all of the dangers and the pitfalls and the cautions. And he knew he was discouraging me. And so suddenly he stopped. And he said, Sandy, there comes a time when you've got to start listening to God on your own. Only God can call this shot. I'll never forget it. And as usual, Dan was very, very wise. You know, I've discovered that you don't really begin to trust the Lord until you turn loose of everybody else's hand. Catherine Jensen puts it this way, Life is like being on a mule team. Unless you're the lead mule, all the scenery looks about the same. <laughs> and it's true. At some point, you've got to be listening to God, leaning on Him, trusting in Him and walking with Him. Verse 7 tells us, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter... 
For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now here is the realization that saved Christianity. That God gives to different people different callings and different gifts to reach different groups. God used Peter's Jewish heritage to reach out to the Jews, whereas he used Paul's familiarity with Gentile custom to reach the Gentiles. But one approach was no better than the other. Both were used by God to reach people. You know, some churches, they adopt a style that reaches the family crowd. Other churches seek to relate to the biker crowd. God calls each church to reach out to its own niche. Notice verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Remember who these guys are. These are the big, these are the big dogs. Peter, James, and John. They constituted Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there in the Garden of Gethsemane when no one else was invited. These were the big dogs, man. Paul says, but they seemed to be pillars. But when those who seemed to be pillars perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. After this showdown with the Judaizers, the people that Paul came to Jerusalem respected, ended up respecting him. In the final analysis, it wasn't labels and titles and tags that meant much. They still don't, by the way. There was no substitute for courage and calling and conviction, and that's what Paul had. And that's what the, the men there in Jerusalem recognized. You know, over the years, I've seen folks sashay into our church, seeming to be pillars, thinking they were somebody, laying out their credentials, wanting to impose their brand of spirituality on the life of this church. Well, they thought they were the ones that would straighten us out. They came, came in wanting to body slam the body of Christ with their legalism and with their traditionalism. But every time we've resisted, and we will continue to resist, because I've been set free by God's grace, and I'm not going back. And this church is the house that grace built. This is the real grace land right here. And with God's help, I intend to keep it that way. I hope you do too. And as Paul discovers, the battle of God's grace is never over. The battle for this grace is never over. It requires eternal vigilance, verse 11. He says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Peter was dissing the Gentile believers. He was treating the Jews like they were first class, and he was putting the Gentiles back in coach. Peter was behaving as if God preferred the Jews over Gentiles, as if they were more righteous, the Jews, than the Gentiles. As if Christianity had its first string and its second string. Oh boy. Once there were two hunters, they, they went to Alaska to, to shoot some big elk. They shot six apiece. 
But when it came time to fly out of the valley, the pilot, he told them, he said, man, he says, sorry, but my plane, it, it, it can't safely carry uh, six elk. It can only carry four elk. You're going to have to leave two of them behind. Well, the hunters, they protested. They said, wait a minute. See, last year we shot six elk. The pilot let us load all six on the plane. And it was the same type plane. It was the same weather. Same size elk. The pilot thought for a minute. He said, well, he said, okay, load them up. But sure enough, the plane was too heavy. And on liftoff, it crashed into the mountain, the side of a mountain. Well, as the hunters staggered away from the wreckage, one of them looks at the other and he says, where are we, man? His friend replies, well, looks like to me about the same place we crashed last year. <laughs> the moral of the story being, some people never learn. And such was the case with Peter, hard-headed Peter. It's been just a few months since he went through this there in Jerusalem. Paul was fighting against the Judaizers. And he's already forgotten the lessons learned and the decisions reached back in Jerusalem. And Paul's frustrated with him. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And guys, this is why we can never be soft on legalism. Because it spreads like wildfire. Even Barnabas. Barnabas, this is Paul's sidekick. This is the guy he's worked miracles with. This is the guy he's preached the gospel with. Even Barnabas was influenced by Peter's legalism. This is tragic. Barnabas should have known better. And yet the deception of legalism was so subtle that even Paul's most trusted ally lost his grip on God's grace. Realize legalism has an appeal. It really does. The New Testament way the ideal of the New Testament of us just loving God and serving others and walking in the Spirit is so subjective. I mean, faith is hard to measure. I mean, it causes you just to lean on someone else. It's an insult to your pride. This is why folks want to gravitate towards standards that they can use to monitor their progress and elevate themselves and show their righteousness and compare themselves with others. Thus, legalism has an appeal. The result, though, is self-righteousness and a judgmental spirit and ultimately a divided church. Paul continues in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the same manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. I mean, Peter was a Jew, and yet he wasn't a strict adherent to the law. Why was he expecting the Gentiles to do more than the Jews? Paul calls him on the carpet for his hypocrisy. And you got to know, this took some guts. Understand what Paul's doing here. Paul goes toe-to-toe with Pentecost Pete. This is the guy at Pentecost who stood up and preached the gospel and 3,000 souls were saved. I mean, this is no small fish in the pond. Recall the Lord Jesus himself gave to Simon the nickname Peter or the Rock. Imagine strapping on the gloves and going a few rounds with Rocky. This is what Paul's doing here. 
You know, there's an old saying, a famous name can never justify an infamous act. Paul wasn't intimidated, even by Peter, even by a pillar in the church, or a so-called pillar in the church. When a person's wrong, he's wrong. I don't care who he is. Paul confronted him. Paul got in his face for the sake of grace. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And I love this word justified. Of all our many blessings, this is the top of my list. I've been justified. You know what it means? It means that I'm treated by God just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means. Because I trust in His Son, God chooses to treat me as if I'd never sinned, even though I have and I do. Wow! This is love that we could never deserve. This is raging, bountiful, extravagant grace. That's what this is. And if you're in Christ Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, you've been justified. This is how God treats you. And it's how God chooses to treat the person who trusts in His Son, Jesus. You can try to force open the door to God's blessings with your good works or with your strenuous efforts, but trust me, the door won't budge when you're trying to force it on your own strength. But if you'll just put your faith in Jesus and trust that you're justified, suddenly you'll hear the tumblers start clicking and instantly the door will swing open and the blessings will pour down and the love will fall out. And it's all because you've put your faith in God's amazing grace. This is how it works. It's through faith. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now Paul is saying it's possible for a Christian to actually shoot themselves in the foot. Did you know this? We can undermine the grace that God has lavishly poured out upon us. While God is treating you as if you've never sinned, you can treat yourself as if you have. God is loving you. He's drawing you. He's forgiving you. He's even blessing you. And you're still beating yourselves up over guilt. Now you can do that to yourself. You can. It's called self-condemnation. You're still mourning over your sin while God is wanting to start you out on a new track. He's forgiven you of your sin. He no longer even treats you according to your sin. He's treating you justified. Why aren't you viewing yourself that way? God sets us free from the rules and the never-ending guilt that comes when we inevitably fail to keep those rules. This is why we need to continually walk and trust in His grace. Paul, in essence, is saying, don't return to the prison once you've been set free. Verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I love this. Paul was a widower to the law. 
Paul was dead to the rules. Their relationship with Paul was over. He died to the law. It was behind him now. All he sees going forward is God and His grace. This is how he chooses to live. Paul is telling us that there are some things that just don't mix. Water and electricity doesn't mix, does it? Honey and vinegar. Hot summer days and chocolate candy bars. And law and grace. They're mutually exclusive ways of relating to God. If you're trusting in your own works, how can you be trusting in His? You've got to decide how you're going to relate to God. Through your own efforts or through God's grace. Paul tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul says that he was crucified with Christ. Jesus took the old Paul, his selfish, sinful nature, and crucified him. The same part of you and me was also nailed to the cross. Did you know, Jesus has put an emphatic end to our inherent sin. Now to live under the law puts the focus on the wrong spot. You don't want to dwell on the standard. Instead, you want to have faith in the Savior. The life and the love of Jesus now lives in you. The inner part of you died with Christ. Why? So that you could now live in the grace of God and enjoy the freedom of God and live in a relationship with God, not under these rules and regulations. This is the wonders of God's grace. And through the life that He now lives through us, He can empower us to victory and to an overcoming life and to a joyous life. But it all happens through grace, not under the law. Paul concludes chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Did you hear that? If righteousness came through the law, Christ died in vain. In other words, if you could be good enough for God on your own, if there's something you could do that would make you pleasing to God on your own, if salvation could come any other way than the cross of Jesus Christ, don't you think God would have spared Himself the heartache and He would have spared His Son a painful death? Don't you think it? To say... Or to let anyone else imply that we can be saved any other way than through the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God degrades the value of both. You insult Christ when you trust in your own efforts or your own merit. If we could do anything on our own effort to be saved or to earn God's favor... Jesus would have never had to die on the cross. There are many, many issues that we as Christians are called on to take a stand. But none, I mean none, are more important than God's matchless grace.